Section 70 of Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Albert Shu. The World Story, Volume 11. Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. Edited by Eva March Tapan. Section 70. The Story of Bolivar, 1817-1830, by Lyndon Bates, Jr. In the latter part of March 1817, a score of horsemen were riding towards Angostura from the northern seacoast, some on mules, some on mangy horses. Most were sallow-skinned creoles clad in civilian dress, sombrero on head, sword and pistol at the belt. A few wore dingy uniforms. One, a gigantic negro, bore the insignia of an officer of the Black Republic of Haiti. Two, military of bearing, keen of eye, had the weather-worn red of the British grenadiers. Half a dozen barefoot peons in ragged ponchos rode behind with the sumpter burros. A slight figure in faded blue regimentals laced with red led the band. Only thirty-four years old, he looked fifty. His dark and wrinkled face was drawn and puckered. Hardship, dissipation, and the bitterest disappointment had left their marks. Born of a noble and wealthy Caracas family, he had been sent to Europe at the age of sixteen. He had visited France, then under the consulate, still vibrant with the recent revolution. He had played and beaten at tennis the Prince of the Asturias, against whom, as Ferdinand VII of Spain, he was now in a duel to the death for the freedom of South America. He had married at the age of nineteen and been widowed within the year. He had returned to Paris and broken his health in wild living. At Rome, he had refused to kiss the cross on Pius VII's shoe. He had returned to Caracas and had taken part in the junta which drove out Emparan, the Spanish captain-general, forced the establishment of a national congress, and drafted the Declaration of Rights of April 19, 1810, celebrated now as the Venezuelan national holiday. He had gone to England and had brought back the banished General Miranda. He had with his Societa Patriotica, secured the Declaration of Independence of July 5, 1811. He had fought against the Royalists, been overwhelmingly beaten, and fled to Cartagena. He had returned while Spain was in the throes of conflict with Napoleon, and entered Caracas amid delirious enthusiasm in a chariot before which girls strewed roses, hailing him El Libertador, he had been defeated once more and had been obliged to flee to Jamaica. A Negro spy hired to assassinate him had killed his secretary by mistake. Now at length, by the aid of a Dutch shipowner and the presidents of the Negro Republic of Haiti, he had been enabled to come back on this final attempt at South American liberation. A monkey, Mono, he was once nicknamed and not unlike a monkey he seemed with his thin little body and his wrinkled face. But one look from his dark, brooding eyes told of the fiery, unconquerable soul that burned in the slight frame. 
The man was Simon Bolivar, the Washington of Spanish America. On this March day in 1817, heading his tattered little cavalcade, he was passing through the anguish of his valley forge. The sky behind was reddened with the fires of Barcelona. The four hundred devoted troops left to hold the Franciscan monastery had been butchered to a man, and the Spaniards were giving the city to the sack. One thousand of the townspeople had been massacred, some on the altar steps. Women and children were being hunted through the streets. Dogs roamed the byways, eating their fill of the neglected bodies. Nor was Barcelona alone. Town after town that had given the revolutionists harbor had fallen to the royalists and suffered a like fate. Boves, the butcher, condemned as a ladron del mar, a renegade revolutionist leading a band of desperados which the Spaniards themselves nicknamed the Corps of Hell. Rosette, with his branding iron R for the foreheads of Republicans. Morales, whom even Boves had called atrocious. These were all in the pay of Spain. Before them fell the town of Acumare. Its streets were left a shambles of the dead and the dying. Old men, women, and children lay with the rest. Valencia surrendered upon the oath of Boves, sworn in the presence of the Holy Sacrament, to respect the lives of everybody. Yet as soon as arms had been surrendered, the governor, ninety of the leading citizens, sixty-four officers, and three hundred and ten troops were slaughtered. Caracas surrendered to Boves on similar terms, which were similarly observed. Boves issued an order that any who had conspired against Spain should be shot, and the slaughter recommenced. Aragua was stormed, and some three thousand townspeople were massacred. Now Barcelona, the last of Venezuela's northern cities, had fallen, and all that were left to follow Bolivar were fifteen officers and a few peons as their servants. Help from abroad there was almost none. President Madison had issued an order forbidding any aid from United States citizens to the struggling revolutionists. Great Britain stood apathetically by her ally Spain. The feeble little Negro Republic of Haiti alone had lent support in men and money, asking in return only Bolivar's promise, which he loyally kept, to give freedom to the slaves of Venezuela. In the colonies themselves, even, pitifully few were his sympathizers. The white population in Venezuela, but 200,000 in number, was practically the only element in the country interested in any way in the outcome of the struggle. These native-born Creoles, tyrannized over by the arbitrary power of the viceroys and Spanish officials, excluded from office and emolument, while their trade and manufacturing were garroted by prohibitive laws, were in general dissatisfied with Spanish misrule, but were averse to the fearful sacrifice which resistance entailed. The king had refused to the Venezuelans permission to found a university in Maracaibo because, in the opinion of his fiscal, it was unsuitable to promote learning in southern America, where the inhabitants appeared destined by nature to work in the mines. The making of wine and oil, the growth of almonds or grapes, the manufacture of cloth, trade with the outside world or even with any Spanish port other than Sevilla, were prohibited. 
Oppressed by these abuses, the native whites still refrained from rallying in any great number to Bolivar. The Indians, 207,000 in number, stigmatized as a race of monkeys, filled with vice and ignorance, automatons unworthy of representing or of being represented, the Negro slaves, 60,000 in number, and the mixed bloods, 43,000 souls in all, though their grievances were far greater than those of the native whites, for the most part simply followed as they were led or paid. With but a small portion of the Creole population as its support, the revolution was imperiled hourly by the insatiable vanities and jealousies of the rival leaders. The Libertador had heard ring in his ears the cry of the mob at Guria. Down with Bolivar! Up with Marino and Bermudez! Would liberty never come? Was this river of blood all that the years of devoted effort were to bring? Bolivar, at the front of his twenty men, hung his head in the agony of defeat and failure. Halt! Halt! whispered one of the riders suddenly. What is that glitter beyond the trees? A horse neighed to the right of the party. An ambuscade! cried hoarsely the first of the red-coated officers. The drooping figure of Bolivar stiffened. The dark eyes flashed. He turned in his saddle. Then, in a voice of thunder, he cried, Columns, extend right and left! Attack on both flanks! It was an order to an imaginary force behind. The officers of his escort repeated the order and rode forward, discharging their pistols. The ambuscade melted away. The Spaniards, inferring a superior force, had taken flight. The insurgent party continued southward. As it marched here and there, wild llaneros and peons were drafted in by payment, promise, or impressment. With a force swelled to some hundreds, Bolivar reached the Orinoco. In the city of Angostura, to be later renamed in his honor Ciudad Bolivar, he surprised and blockaded the feeble Spanish garrison. Piar, the mulatto chief of a band of Republican cutthroats who had combined patriotism with profit by seizing the persons and property of the Capuchin friars along the Caroni, now joined Bolivar. The latter sent him to attack San Felix. The bloodthirsty but efficient half-breed defeated the Spanish garrison and took prisoner, the governor, 75 officers, and 200 men, all of whom he remorselessly slaughtered. Fearing now lest the monks whom Piar had captured would embarrass his movements, Polivar sent a message to one of the mulatto's officers in charge, saying, Transport the prisoners to La Divina Pastora. The officer, not knowing of the town thus named, and supposing that he was to send the monks to the divine shepherdess in heaven, forthwith massacred them all. Neither of these atrocities was punished. Of such deeds was the war. Murder marched alike with royalist and revolutionist. On July 17th, the weak Spanish forces abandoned Angostura and Los Castillos. The Orinoco was in possession of the revolutionists. Bolivar's joy was intense. The capture of Angostura marked the turning point in the struggle, as the capture of Trenton had signaled the turn of the tide for Washington. A few days after the capture of Angostura, Bolivar's staff met in the thick-walled house which lodged the Libertador. The members of his provisional cabinet were there. 
Zaya Martinez Brion, Colonel Wilson, commander of the Red Hussars, the English Dr. Moore. A map lay on the table before them, blue pins locating the royalist troops. These occupied Cartagena, Valencia, Caracas, Barcelona, the cities all along the north coast. A few red pins showed the scattered centers of the revolutionists. Santander in New Granada, Marino and Bermudez on the northeast, opposite Trinidad, Arismendi on the island of Margarita. What was to be the next move? I propose that we stay here and meet the troops sent against us, suggested Zea. Colonel Wilson objected. The Spaniards will beat Marino and Bermudez one after the other and then overwhelm us. The colonel is right, insisted Bolivar. We must strike while they are separated. Join Bermudez and Marino in the northeast, counseled Martinez. March westward along the coast and attack Morillo. He had only 700 Spaniards on the island when he attacked Arismendi. Bolivar shook his head. Better fight alone than with them. They will sacrifice me, the Republic, and anything else to their vanity and love of power. You know how Bermudez drew his sword on me at Giuria and the plots to kill me. There was silence for a moment. The fate of Spanish South America hung on the decision. A rattle of hoofs sounded outside. A rough voice demanded admission. I would see General Bolivar. I come from Uncle Paez, called the mounted figure. Bring him here, said Bolivar. A half-breed llanero, barefooted, clad in dirty cotton shirt and trousers, his head thrust through a great blue poncho, shambled in before the council. Which is Bolivar? he asked. The leader was pointed out, and the llanero approached and put his hand familiarly on the officer's shoulder, the undisciplined plainsman's greeting. Uncle Paya sends me to you to tell that the unconquered Bravos de Apure, with a thousand llaneros, will ride with you against the Spaniard. The members of the council looked at each other. Paez, with his vaqueros, roving over the boundless plains of the interior, from which for four years he had been harrying the Spanish outposts, was hardly known to most of these caraquenos and margaritans, though Bolivar had heard of his exploits in New Granada. Bolivar seized the map. Where is Paez? he cried. By the Apure near San Fernando, said the peon. In a flash, the Libertador's mind was made up. He turned to the Llanero. Write to General Paez and say I march to join him. He rose to his feet and pointed to the map. See, si, senores, here lies our route. We hold in Angostura the gateway to the Orinoco. As far as Santa Fe de Bogotá, there is no force to oppose us along the line of the Orinoco and Apure. We are in the rear of the enemy, whose strength is in the coast towns. Here we have cattle and horses. Here we can raise recruits from the Llaneros, who care not for whom they fight, and who are for us now that Boves is gone. If beaten, we can retreat like Tartars to the immeasurable plains. We will march to Apure and join Paez, he hesitated. Morillo will come down thus from the north in haste. We will meet him. His finger halted, then pointed to the plain near Calabozo. We will meet him here. Now gather our forces and organize. This is the death grapple. Recruits flocked to Bolivar's standards. To pay them, he confiscated the property of all Spaniards. The blood-stained PR, found plotting against Bolivar, as Lee against Washington, was more summarily treated. He was shot, 
and his force was attached to Bolivar's own. With 2,000 infantry and 1,000 cavalry, the leader started from Angostura on the 31st December, 1817, up the Orinoco. Bolivar was joined on the way by his fugitive lieutenant, Zarasa, and a remnant of men. On January 31st, he united with General Paez and added 1,000 cavalry and 250 infantry to his army. Together, they marched against Morillo. At El Diamante, the Apure River barred their way. If it were not passed, their sudden attack on Morillo would be checked and the Spaniard could rally his forces. Moored to the opposite bank was a Spanish gunboat, three flat-bottomed flecheras, and several canoes. Bolivar paced up and down nervously. You have brought me here, General Paez. How will you get me across? he asked querulously. On those flacheras over there, said Paez nonchalantly. Bolivar looked after him in amazement. Paez had already gone to his llaneros. We must have those flacheras, children, he cried. Who will come with Uncle Paez and capture them? Choose whom you want, Uncle, was the answering shout. Fifty llaneros he picked out. On horseback, lance in hand, they entered the stream and swam into the current. Two men were seized by caimans and dragged below as Bolivar's force breathlessly watched them. The forty-eight reached the flacheras and the gunboat, the Spaniards too surprised to resist seriously. In a tumult of triumph, the boats were sailed across the river. On February 12, Bolivar appeared before the surprised Morillo near Calabosa. The small Spanish force was attacked, beaten, and massacred without quarter. Then the fortunes of war turned against the Libertador. He was driven back to the Orinoco, but reinforcements had begun to come in now that he held firmly the great river artery. Several hundred blacks from Haiti joined him. An Irish legion came, commanded by General Devereux, and a British officer, English by name, one of Wellington's trusted subordinates, arranged for the equipment and shipment of 1,200 good troops. Most of these were soldiers of fortune, veterans left without congenial occupation at the close of the Napoleonic Wars. Notable among the volunteers was Francis M. Drexel of Philadelphia, an Austrian portrait painter who later, with Bolivar's backing, was to found the great banking house of which John Pierpont Morgan is now the head. By the end of 1818, Bolivar had won out sufficiently to issue a call for the Congress of Angostura to meet on January 1st, 1819, to frame a republican form of government and replace the military dictatorship. The magnificent dream of the Libertador now took shape. It was to erect upon the ruins of Spanish power a great centralized republic, extending from the Atlantic to the Pacific, from the Caribbean Sea to the Valley of the Amazon, covering all of northern South America. Against the party that desired to carve up this vast territory into a number of small sovereign states loosely federated, Bolivar threw the whole weight of his vast influence. He pleaded before the Congress, I have been obliged to beg you to adopt centralization and the union of all the states in a republic, one and indivisible. The Congress wavered and then sided with Bolivar. There was decreed a unified republic, including what are now the republics of Venezuela, Colombia, and Ecuador. Of this empire, named Greater Colombia, 
Bolivar was chosen the first president. The ideal of the Libertador had triumphed, but the bulk of this domain was yet to be conquered. The first assault was planned against the Spaniards in the northwest, in New Granada. Here the flames of resistance had been kept alight by General Santander, with whose ragged band it was Bolivar's immediate purpose to unite. By the middle of June 1819, this preliminary move had been successfully taken. But the Andes had yet to be crossed, and at the worst time of the year, the passage of the Cordilleras with a tattered and steadily diminishing handful of famished men was an act of desperate courage. It meant four weeks of weary climbing over snow-capped peaks and through freezing torrents. The road traversed by the poor wretches was marked by crosses in memory of those who had perished in the snow sierras. But beyond those awful mountains lay the smiling plains of New Granada, and its populace was friendly to the patriot cause. Disregarding all recognized rules of the game of war, Bolivar, who was in terrible need of provisions and arms, determined to leave the enemy across his line of communications and make direct for the important town of Tunja. It was taking a risk, but a necessary risk, and one that was completely justified by the result. For Barriero, the Spanish general, conceiving that he must fight for the defense of Tunja, gave Bolivar battle at Boyacá and was utterly routed. Barriero broke his sword across his knee and surrendered, with many officers and some 1,600 men. The Patriot army had to mourn the loss of only 13 killed and 53 wounded. Everywhere now, Bolivar was victorious. He marched to Bogotá, from which Samano, the Spanish viceroy, fled. Returning eastward, he fought the desperate battle of Carabobo, which finally freed Venezuela from the Spanish yoke. The dogged heroism of the British Legion, which lost a third of its men and two commanders in succession, saved the day. As Bolivar rode past their shattered ranks that night, he hailed them, Salvadores de mi patria. All of its survivors were made on the field of battle, members of the Order of Liberators. On into Peru went Bolivar, proclaimed dictator by the inhabitants. On the field of Ayacucho, while the dictator was absent, his second-in-command, General Sucre, fought and won a last great battle in which the Spanish army was completely routed and dispersed. The ground for miles was strewn with the silver helmets of the Spanish hussars. Ayacucho, the death blow to Spanish power in South America, was the culminating point of Bolivar's career. Dictator of Peru, President of Greater Colombia, organizer of the new state of Bolivia, his authority extended over a territory two-thirds as large as Europe. He had indignantly rejected all suggestions for monarchy and a personal dynasty. As the Libertador, he had fought to free, not to enslave. For one brief moment, as splendid a vision as man has ever cherished was real. The great South American Republic. Almost in an hour, the whole structure fell. Against him rose the generals who had shared his glory, Santander in New Granada, Paez in Venezuela, Sucre dissatisfied, abandoned Bolivia, Peru demanded the end of the dictatorship, 
Bolivar's ungrateful fellow countrymen cried out against his inordinate ambition. In his home city of Caracas, an attempt was made to assassinate him. Attacked on all sides by those whom he had befriended and raised to power, Bolivar resigned from the presidency and retired to Cartagena. Even here the enmity of jealous hate hounded him. He prepared to leave South America for a refuge in the West India Islands. But before he could sell, the end had come. Exhausted by the terrible exertions of his life of warfare, broken in spirit, bankrupt in hope, he died in December 1830 at the age of 47. So little had he personally profited by his supreme position that he had to be buried at the expense of his friends. Thus ended the long line of conquistadores who battled for Trinidad and Guiana. For each was the draught of bitterness after all his heroism and all his glory. Columbus carried back to Spain in irons, Deberio dead of disappointment, Raleigh executed by his treacherous king, Picton brought to trial for peculation, Nelson falling for a nation that refused his last prayer, Bolivar dying despised and penniless in the country he had freed. Tragedy, grim and relentless, had marched side by side with the conquistadores. End of section 70. This recording is in the public domain.